Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If you have a happy childhood, you tend to want your child to have a happy childhood, so you tend to want to keep the bad things out, and I don't think that's good because you don't prepare them for the world. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to tackle a controversial subject involving race that many people would rather just avoid. Does this mean we're making a bid to join the intellectual dark web? <laughs> is, is that the criterion? <laughs> the, talking about race? I thought the criterion was having fancy pictures taken of you kind of in the dark. That's the like, like, so every person who has that gets to be part of the intellectual dark web. Oh, maybe <laughs> that's a necessary, but I don't think it's a, a sufficient. It's not sufficient. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're too liberal to to be part of the intellect. Which the intellectual dark web just appears to be people who, on the face of it, are liberal but turn conservative, or maybe just conservatives who liberals hear about. <laughs> but but who have been the victim of some overreaction by the left, oh, yeah. I think. And Except for Joe Rogan. Is, I don't think anybody's overreacted to Joe Rogan. That's true. They've reacted is just Is he part of the intellectual the, dark web? Yeah, he was part. He, he had a dark picture. I, so we need some conceptual analysis of the intellectual dark web, clearly. <laughs> For those, yeah, why don't you say what it is? Well, it was a New York Times magazine article written by Barry Weiss um, that had a lot of photos of people like Sam Harris and my stepmother, Christina Hoff Summers, and um, I guess Joe Rogan. I, I chose how far I read into the essay, not that far. Uh, I think Dave <laughs> Rubin was another one. Um, Maybe the. And yeah. who else was part of it? Brett Weinstein. Yeah, Brett Weinstein, the Evergreen State. He's the, he's had quite a couple of years. In this life. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, like that's <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Like, what does Nicholas Christakis see Brett Weinstein and be like, "Hey, why the hell didn't this happen to me?" <laughs> well, Nick Christakis actually is doing research still. You know, he's just like, <laughs> uh oh, are you shitting on Brett Weinstein? I don't know what he does. IDW people will come after you. I don't understand the metaphor anyway. The dark web is like where you go to find kitty porn and like, you know, drugs. Yeah. Like, believe me, I'm familiar. (laughs) I think that the intellectual dark web is where you go to find dangerous ideas. 
<laughs> do you think that liberals use uh, porn mode on their browser whenever they navigate to Quillette? <laughs> Is there a browser that just honestly calls it porn mode since there's no other reason think, you would I ever... I think so, but porn mode. <laughs> Private browsing. Uh, uh, that would be hilarious if, you know, your spouse comes home and they're like waiting they're sitting at the table and you're like what they're like i checked your browser history what are you talking about really reason.com really (laughs) (laughs) it was just well we haven't had many debates in the house recently you know we used to we used to we used to get into what controversial discussions all the time and now we like never do we just same routine every night so excuse me if every once in a while i want to find something i'm not getting at home maybe race is related to iq Uh, have you have we talked about that in 10 years i'm too tired see this is what you always say you're too tired you know it's a good thing these websites exist because or else i would just have to go somewhere else so you should be thankful i'm staying i would have to pay for my challenging ideas oh god (laughs) always always erase your internet browsing history (laughs) well you don't need to anymore but not yeah you don't need to anymore yeah yeah although it's suspicious if it's too clean so you have to like toss in you know some (laughs) (laughs) that's only if uh your wife or husband or girlfriend or boyfriend checks checks your browser (laughs) that's hopefully you're at a point in the relationship where that's not happening i've never had trust (laughs) i've never uh, uh well so I, I, so what yeah. we are going to talk about is the implicit association test we were going to do personality psychology but we didn't have the time to do the necessary research for our patreon selected episode so we are doing uh the second place uh yeah. vote getter which is the uh, iat implicit well implicit bias more generally let's yes. say because of which the IIT will probably dominate the conversation. But, but yes, the, the whole notion of, of implicit as opposed to explicit bias. Yeah, no, that's good. That's exactly right. Before we get there, do we, have, do we have anything more to say about the intellectual dark web? I love my stepmother. I'm glad she is getting some attention. I didn't read the whole article, though. So, <laughs> uh, I don't know. People say it's, it was more nuanced than what you might think of an article like that if you uh, hear about it. And I don't I, know if that's true or not, but I hope that it is. My, my only feelings are... Uh, that the name is corny <laughs> yes it is uh, a little self-congratulatory in a somewhat cringy kind of way but yeah you know gives me the corny chills is like that's the emotion i like to call it. well and um, also the thing that i don't like about it is i i don't like when people who have fairly mainstream views that are being celebrated by a large percentage of the population uh you know it has this kind of like we're mavericks kind of feel to it yeah yeah you know jordan peterson was one of them jordan peterson right and i think that you know maybe they they are more willing to go against the grain on certain issues than other people um you know sam harris is probably more willing to go against the grain than certain people on on the left <laughs> on certain issues but i think it it would 
I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if it's fair. I, it doesn't strike. It strikes me that these aren't people with revolutionary or radical ideas. And well, I mean, like, uh, you know, th- like on that list are people with <clears throat> arguably the top podcast in the in the nation. Um, one of the best selling books, if not the best selling book of the year. Um, it's it's a little hard. <laughs> to is this Jordan put them Peterson? In. Yeah, yeah. His his twelve rules. But this is why maybe the article may address the complexity of that, and it's really just the name that we would be complaining about. <laughs> that's why. That's why it was my only comment. <laughs> <laughs> I really have no nothing else to say. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But don't save your angry tweets and emails. Um, We've, I think they could just. I think that you need to have a fancy picture in the dark, yeah, and you have to believe that the gender wage gap isn't nearly as big as people say it is. <laughs> Those two beliefs, <laughs> I think, capture everybody on that list. <laughs> That's probably true. Yes. All right. I saw that Yoel just got online for Skype. Either he's angling to come on again, or, or he's about to record. One of his yeah, he, podcasts. Yeah, he doesn't need us. He Ooh. doesn't need us. They're drinking kind of early. <laughs> They're drinking their <laughs> big two beers. Whoa. I can't I, believe it. I, They're actually having two beers on their podcast. We, I have at least four drugs in my system now, you know, but I, I don't title my podcast, you know, below Adderall and uh, antidepressants. <laughs> Speaking of which, I uh, speaking of podcasts where people drink and talk about how they drink and make that a sort of central part of promoting the podcast, my stepmother, member of the Intellectual Dark Web, has a podcast called The Femsplainers. And that is a good title, I think. That is a good title. The Femsplainers with Danielle Crittenden. Um, who is one of her very good friends out in Washington, D.C., and someone I like a lot, too. She is also um, the wife of David Frum. So, and are they drink- they're drinking on their podcast? Yes, they have cocktails, though. And I may go on their podcast and at some point. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, a lot of people really look forward to to your holiday podcast <laughs> with with Christina. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And right. And it is a she's a good person to have to get uh, so that people who have a caricatured view of her positions can get a more nuanced view of her positions. Right. Even even you, even you with your SJW curious <laughs> tendencies. Um, so we thought before we get to the Im- implicit bias topic in the main segment, we thought we would list some of the things that we have enjoyed, or at least a couple of the things that we have enjoyed recently that we've been watching. People always tweet us and email us and ask us if we've seen this or that. Um, here is a couple of things that we've been watching and that we recommend. Dave, you want to start? Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, I love watching sort of just having my iPad on watching TV sort of in the background. Um, and there's a few Amazon prime video shows, uh, that I, that I really have enjoyed. The first is sneaky Pete, which is, this is a great premise. Giovanni Rabisi plays a, an ex convict who takes on the identity of his cellmate to sort of avoid, get, avoid the trouble, uh, that he's facing upon leaving, uh, prison. 
and he's doing this long con. So it's basically, I love, I love movies and TV shows where con artists do cool things for cons. And this is, this is just a version of that, but I think it's well acted. The other one is Bosch, um, which is like a police procedural, um, takes place in LA play. The the lead role is played by Titus Welliver, who, who was in Deadwood. Um, and I just like that guy. And it seems like it might be just a sort of a boring police procedural, but I think it's actually really interesting. Um, well done shot in LA. If you like LA or you've lived in LA, you'll recognize a lot of it. I think it's, it's great. And to, uh, to end it off, there's been one season of a show called Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton on Amazon Prime Video, who plays a sort of just a washed up uh, lawyer who apparently was brilliant, but is now an alcoholic. Again, these things sound like tropes, but it's really well done. So apparently he was a great litigator, but just got bored and now spends his life as an alcoholic. But of course, something happens that brings him back into the world of law. Um, okay, so I have a couple of movie recommendations. This is just, I, these are two movies that I've seen recently that really enjoyed that I think our listeners may not have seen. The first is Brigsby Bear, which has pr- supporting performances by Mark Hamill and Greg Kinnear. Those are probably the two people, the only two people you've heard of. I went into this having heard a podcast recommended to me of film people that I trust and I knew nothing about it. And that's how I think it's best to go into it. I think it's a great movie. I think anybody that I've recommended it to has, that has seen it has enjoyed it and enjoyed it way more than they thought they would. And so I just recommend checking that out. It's available on Amazon, but I think you'd have to buy it or you could just sign up for stars and I think it's available on Stars if you just sign up for that free preview or something of Stars, and and then you'll be able to see it or one of the movie channels. It's great. It's really funny and sweet and 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 good, and it's good to watch with your kids. Another one that's good to watch with your kids that I just watched is Paper Moon. I haven't heard of that one either. This is a movie from the early '70s by directed by written and directed by Peter. No, sorry, not written by, but directed by Peter Bogdanovich and starring Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill. It's set in the Depression. It's shot in gorgeous black and white. It's a beautiful movie. It's an absolutely stunningly beautiful movie. And it's about uh, a con man who comes to uh, of the funeral of, of, a, of a woman that he knew and clearly slept with at some point, leaving a now orphaned young daughter played by Tatum O'Neill. She, she, I think she was shooting it when she was nine or ten. She's, she gives the most remarkable, heartfelt, beautiful and and hard performance like it's a really she's she's like smoking in the movie and she's it's like this is definitely from the 70s you couldn't have this movie right now and it's thoroughly entertaining and really moving and uh yeah and i mean just see it if you want to see a child performance like the child just knocks it out of the park i, I would strongly recommend uh paper moon and then the the thing that I've been watching on TV, this is the shows that I've been watching with my daughter and my wife. Um, my wife and I have seen it, and I've seen it multiple times. But I think 
once a child, my daughter's just turned 14, she was definitely ready to see The Wire. And we've watched the first three seasons of The Wire. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And she loves it and is very moved by it, very attached to the characters. And so obviously I think most of our listeners have probably seen The Wire, but maybe some of you have children that you might be wary of showing uh, a, a show like that to. I, uh, I, was, I was not surprised because I know Eliza has sophisticated viewing tastes, but <laughs> I was very encouraged by how much she embraced the show and was you know, challenged by it and moved by it. It's great. It's, uh, um, yeah, I'm yeah. going to toss in one really quick last one. Uh, I love card magic, but this is also just a documentary um, about a card magician who happens to be blind. So it's more than about that. It's called Delt, about a guy named Richard Turner. And he just does uh, fucking amazing things with cards just by touching them. He's actually a card sharp. Like he, he's sort of trained to be able to cheat really well. Yeah. Completely blind, can can do all kinds of things with cards that most people can cannot do with both of their eyes. It's a great documentary. All right. When we come back, uh, our bid to join the intellectual dark web will be complete <laughs> as we talk about implicit bias. Thanks to RX Bar for sponsoring this episode. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean? Uh-oh, I think we need a theory. And here's a necessary, and I'd even say a sufficient condition. Whole food bars are made with 100% whole ingredients without any fillers, additives, chemicals, or added sugar. And there it is. That's my theory of whole food protein bars, immune to all counterexamples. RX bars come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. And as of May 14th, there are three new flavors, mango, pineapple, peanut butter and berries, and chocolate hazelnuts. And also, starting on May 29th, RX bar introduces RX nut butter made with the same core ingredients as RX protein bars. The new nut butters include a base of nuts, peanuts or almonds, egg whites, and dates, available in honey, cinnamon, peanut butter, peanut butter, and vanilla almond butter. RX bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds with no BS. And whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors or some combination of all of those there's an rx bar for you it's great for a number of occasions like breakfast on the go snack at the office or even a 160 mile bike ride from houston to austin that's where i took my rx bars my favorite flavors chocolate sea salt those bars got me up through the hill country when i was fading and i needed the energy that only rx bars can provide and now, for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com wizards and enter promo code wizards at checkout. Again, for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com wizards and enter promo code wizards at checkout.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, at this time, we'd like to take a moment, as we always do after the break, to thank all the people who engage with us, who tweet us, who email us, who give us shit on Reddit and Facebook. This is the kind of community that we love. It's the kind of it's it's what makes us so happy to keep doing the podcast, and we really appreciate it. We say this a lot, but I, I think we have one of the highest levels of engagement from listen not uh, not our engagement, but your engagement. <laughs> we hope that continues, and we hope you keep getting in touch with us. Um, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, at verybadwizards. You can go to our Reddit page. We have a subreddit, r slash verybadwizards. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. You can uh, you can rate us on iTunes. We love those iTunes ratings. We check them now, not not in the hopes that it will improve our ranking, but just to see what the ratings are. You guys mm-hmm. are, uh, and it does help to get people who might not be aware of us to see it. So uh, we really appreciate when you rate us on iTunes as well. Um, and Facebook page. Like us on Facebook and join the conversation there. There's uh, usually a good conversation of each episode. And if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can um, give us a one-time donation by sending us PayPal. You can click on the Amazon link on our support page and then shop as you normally would, and we'll get a small chunk of that uh, at no extra cost to you. And, and you can become one of our Patreon members. And we love our Patreons, patrons, our supporters. We say this a lot, but we mean it a lot. And uh, we just posted for our $2 and up supporters a lengthy... Um, well, it was supposed to be a 20-minute conversation. It was supposed to be a 20-minute conversation on, on the entire history of you... Uh, the the black from Black Mirror season one, and it turned into about a sixty minute conversation that I enjoyed. I didn't. Uh, it was it was not edited, so I didn't go back and listen to it. But I really enjoyed it, and I hope our patrons enjoyed it as well. So yeah, thank you. All right, let's get to implicit bias. So. As Tamler said, this was the number two pick. I actually thought it would win as as a pick because of how sort of salient, relevant, sort of current um, the topic is. Um, and how much it reflects a sort of a larger conversation about the politics right. of uh, scientific research. The po- so, so it reflects politics and, in general and it reflects uh, sort of divisiveness in america and so i wanted to start off by um maybe defining what it is that people mean when they say implicit bias because um it's it's not always clear um well for sure that term is abused so there are some cases (laughs) in which uh people act in very explicitly prejudicial ways um, but it's still referred to as implicit bias. So I wanted to, to bear with me, give a little bit of history about why 
uh, we refer to these kinds of attitudes or beliefs um, as implicit. And it really comes from an older literature in cognitive psychology um, where the term implicit was used, for instance, heavily in the study of memory. And the distinction between implicit and, impl- and explicit memory is something every intro psych student learns. Uh, there are things that you have conscious access to, like, you know, what your name is, uh, what you uh, what you did, where you went on vacation last year. Those things are available to your conscious memory. They're explicit. Um, but then there are a variety of things that you, in some way, know, but have no real ability to formulate that you know it. And so one really easy example of that is what one, what you might call pr- procedural memory. So you are able to ride a bike or if you learn to drive a stick shift, to drive a stick shift. You don't have really any explicit ability to say how you do it or what you're doing. Um, you just kind of know it. Um, there are other... There are other things, the other demonstrations of implicit memory that aren't procedural. Um, so, for instance, uh, you can be shown to have a memory that you're unable to report through a variety of procedures. I won't get into, into those particular priming procedures, but, but I think it's really well illustrated by an anecdote. This might be apocryphal, but it nonetheless is a very, very good example of what an, uh, the difference between explicit and implicit memory. So take anterograde amnesic, people like uh, the guy in Memento. They cannot form um, new long-term memories. That is, they remember about you know anywhere between 10 seconds and two minutes of, of their current life. But as soon as that's done, it's just out of there. So you tell somebody a joke. You get one of these patients and you tell them a joke. They laugh because they've heard it for the first time. Um, but you know that when you come back in five minutes, they won't have any memory of that joke. At least they won't have any explicit memory of that joke. In fact, they won't have any explicit memory of you or who you are. But if you keep telling them that joke coming back every five minutes, they laugh less. Right. They laugh less and less. So at some level, they have an implicit memory that you can measure in this case by say laughing um that that is a reliable indicator that there is some form of knowledge that has been stored and is being accessed but that the person has no explicit uh access to it it is very well established that we have these kinds of implicit memories there are a variety of ways in which you can show you can induce an implicit memory uh in the lab and show that it has an effect that basic approach, that division between explicit and and implicit was sort of ported over to the study of social psychology and the study of attitude. Because for a long time, it was known that if you want to study some some topics, like if you want to study racism, uh, for instance, in America, let's black-white racism, a lot of the discussion will be around that. Um, it used to be that you could just ask people, like, what do you think about black people? You could ask white people what they thought about black people, and they would actually tell you. Of course, that stopped being an easy way to assess prejudice. But there was still a belief that that clearly there were prejudicial behaviors, but people were unwilling to report it. 
and then there was the belief that perhaps it was even more that j- people were just weren't just willing to report it, uh, but perhaps they didn't have access to some of the attitudes and beliefs, much like you don't have access to to uh, implicit memories. But nonetheless, they reveal themselves in some way or another. And so, in the early '90s, there was a big push of bringing tools using cognitive psychology over to social psychology. And we, we now refer to the field sometimes as social cognition. Um, and there were a variety of methods that were used to try to assess people's implicit attitudes towards something. And by attitude here, I mean valence, like a positive or negative um, attitude. So would this be an example of an implicit attitude? Let's say I'm, I, I think that I harbor nothing but affectionate loving attitudes towards you know my brother or something like that but um there's certain aspects of the way i act that makes it seem like i'm really angry at him about something and so but i but i don't if you ask me am i angry at my brother I will say no and I won't be lying I will genuinely believe that the answer to that question is no Right. Yeah, that could be. And in fact, there is some some work on on implicit attitudes toward uh, close relationships um, that tries to assess just that. And and many people believe that we have valence attitudes towards everything. That is, at some level, your mind is quickly categorizing things into I like it versus I don't like it, even if it's very very weak, and even if you don't notice it. So um, I just quickly flash you. A, uh, a a letter from a language from an alphabet that you've never seen before. Uh, the idea is that you will have some sort of reaction to this. You'll either like it or you won't. You might not even notice it, but you may, in a task, you may choose that. So this all sort of exploded with the work done by uh, Anthony Greenwald and Mazarin Banaji the University of Washington and at Yale University, respectively, because they developed a test using the knowledge of how to use reaction time measures that they'd borrowed from cognitive psychologists to try to measure valenced attitudes with a sort of clever reaction time measure that could assess attitudes that you might not even know that you had. Um, and Tamler, you took one of these because anybody can take them right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's hosted can, at Harvard, right? Yeah, it's called Project Implicit. It's a nonprofit organization. They collect data. They basically make a whole bunch of tests available um, for anybody to take. We'll put a link to it. It's implicit at projectimplicit.org, but that directs to implicit.harvard.edu. And the idea is that you can sort of see how your attitudes uh, might be toward a variety of things. So there, there are. Uh, um, tasks that about your that assess your attitudes about obesity or age or gender of course race and here's the basics of how it works i mean it's it's very you'll get the idea if you go and take this test and we'll also link to a couple articles that explain it very well but the basic idea is this is a relative assessment so you have on one side you have the word good so that's your left side on the right side you have the word bad And now in the middle, at the bottom, a word shows up and it says joy. 
your simple task is to categorize that as good or bad. Joy is a word most people think is a, it's a good thing. Now, um, I'll use the race IT as an example. Now you have uh, the word black and the word white. And now a face comes up and the face is either of a black person or a white person. And you have to sort, right? So if it's a black face... I think black they face, now do African Americans and European Americans. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But but who 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 knows if those if black people are Americans <laughs> in those pictures? <laughs> they might be French black people for all. <laughs> um, uh, and so, but yes, uh, so so you sort those faces. The critical trials are the ones where now you are going to be asked to simultaneously pair faces into either black or white and words into good or bad. So now you have a pairing on the left of a white face with the word good underneath it. And on the right side, you have a black face with the word bad underneath it. And you're asked to go as quickly as you can. Black face pops up, you hit the right button. Uh, the word death pops up, you hit the right button. The word joy pops up, you hit the left button. The, the white face pops up, you hit the left button. So you're sorting now um, black and white uh, sorry, white and good on one side, black and bad on the other side. You, your reaction time is measured. You're instructed to go as fast as you can. In fact, if you go too slow, your data is just discarded because, because it's useless. It's supposed to be something that you can't control easily. And th that critical moment is when they flip it. Sometimes it's flipped first because um, it's counterbalanced. Um, and now the word good is paired with a blackface. So now whenever the word joy comes up, you have to click the left button because the word good is there and a blackface is there. And it's the same button that you would click if you saw a blackface. So now you're doing black and good and white and bad um, rather than black, bad, white, good. And there is, to, to make it very simple, the difference between how fast you are at the white, good, black, bad categorization task and the white, bad, black, good categorization task is roughly the measure that they use for assessing how biased you are or what your, what your attitudes are. Um, and then they ask you a bunch of questions to measure explicit bias, and then they, I assume, use that as a sort of subtraction. Uh, they don't. They don't use that. Um, they just. They're using that. Doesn't go into your IAT score at all. They're just the, assessing the degree of correlation between your implicit attitudes and your explicit. Oh, okay, um, I see. Yeah. So the so it would be imp even if you were just explicitly racist. Uh, I guess because the task doesn't ask you to um, to make any judgments. Uh, right. Exactly. It just asks you to do like a like a like a puzzle where there's always a right or wrong answer, uh, objectively right. right or wrong answer. That that will always count as implicit bias, even if you also report explicitly racist attitudes. That's right. So you could be high on explicit bias in this case. You could be. Let's just use the 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 direction that would be most familiar. You could have negative associations with black faces. So you so you have a high score, and you might be explicitly prejudiced, um, or you could be uh, low on explicit prejudice, 
but high on the implicit test. It would be really weird if you were if you were very <laughs> low on the implicit test and high on the explicit test. Sort of yeah. like a Frankfurtian, sort of a second order desire to be racist, but you can't really get your. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> you it would really be like uh, who was it? Uh, Herbert Goering, that uh, or was it? He sort of had to force himself to. He had to force to, himself to be cruel right. to to like to overcome his empathy for Jews and try. Yeah. So before we get into, there are other tasks that measure that uh, that purport to measure implicit attitudes, but I first want to talk to you, Tamler, about about the just the notion that there is an implicit um, that there is a, a sort of a level of attitudes that you might have that you don't that you're not aware of. Do I find that plausible? Yeah, I think yeah, I think it would. I think it sounds very plausible. I would be surprised if you know we're aware of uh if oh well i'd be surprised if there weren't a lot of attitudes that we have or the valence of which we are not either fully aware of or even aware of uh, at, at any level right so so it could be that you are uh, really biased against um, pregnant women and when you get on a bus and there's a pregnant woman you just you don't look in her direction um and you sort of ignore her when she speaks you don't really realize that this is the case. You have no idea why why yeah. this would be the case. You deny it, um, but nonetheless, it sort of is influencing um, some aspect of your behavior. So, um, is that uh, this is my first question? So, um, for it to be a true an implicit attitude, is it does it have to also influence behavior in some way? That that's a really good question, and. and depending on who you ask, um, uh, the answer might be different. So uh, my answer is not necessarily. So, so, but this takes the wind out of the sail of, of, the, of the sails of people who want to use these kinds of assessments as a way to combat behavior. But I think that there are most likely, it, that it's very plausible that there are attitudes that would never be expressed um, for a variety of reasons, right? So you might you might harbor uh, negative negative attitudes toward young black men, um, but never, but you know, like for either societal constraints or because you don't believe that you should endorse these, you never let yourself actually behave in a way um, that that expresses prejudice. So some people would claim, well, you just don't know um, that you are in fact expressing behavior. But I don't think conceptually the link has to be, the, 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 the link only has to be that the, at the most minimal level, if it is an attitude, you should be able to see it in some degree but you could treat the you can treat the IAT as a as a behavior of in in like, some ways it's an unimportant conceptual right distinction because the only way that this test matters is i think if it is tied to behavior in some way because if it turns out that people who are implicitly biased do not in any way behave in ways that um, are biased or prejudiced then it, it just wouldn't be that interesting that well we, and, yeah. and you might not even call it but you might say that's the wrong word to use 
right? Yeah. That, yeah, bias yeah. Is, is the wrong but then word. Then that, that returns to the concept. I mean, I guess the point is yeah. then it becomes a terminological issue. Yeah. Uh, at, but what makes it important, what would make it have real world implications, like we need diversity training and seminars to combat this, is if it affected people's behavior. I, I think that's right. Right now, now what behaviors you think are important turns out to be when when the scholars disagree about the the nature of the evidence about whether this test predicts behavior. They often disagree about whether the behavior that it has been shown to predict is important in any way. So so for instance, one common task that has been used by social psychologists to assess prejudice, like a, a behavior in the lab is that they'll have a, a black student sitting down in a chair and they'll have a white student come and they'll say, just grab a chair and sit next to the, the person that you're going to interact with. And they measure the distance to which the person puts the chair, right? So critics might say, well, this is a stupid measure. Um, but if the IAT predicts it, which I believe it does um, to some degree, uh, they would say, well, look, like this is, this is not going to measure flag burning because people, you know, like this, this is not, these are the kinds of things that actually do matter in everyday life. Like, you know, uh, looking at a black person suspiciously when they walk into your store or acting nervous when you're walking, you know, crossing the street. Um, those are the kinds of behaviors that, that actually, uh, they're not trivial. They might be, they, they pale in comparison to, you know, voting for Trump <laughs> um, to, 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 you know, wanting segregation to be brought back to the United States. But so some of the argument, some of the argument is about how much those. those so uh, and I know there's some controversy of how reliably it even predicts those kinds right. of behaviors, certainly for individuals. And yeah. um, in fact, I, my sense from reading the stuff that you gave me was it didn't predict for individuals um, well but so it could yeah predict for groups so so this is also up up for debate um and we'll put a link to jesse single who who is a, a great science journalist um has written a couple of pieces he wrote a very long piece in in Cut. january on the nature of this test and whether it predicts anything and he sort of reviewed the research um, and concluded that, in fact, it suffers from so many problems and it doesn't predict behavior. My reading of the research is different than his. So I think that he comes down too hard on, on the task in terms of whether it can predict behavior. And it, it really turns on some, some academic debates that we won't get into, but like what kinds of things that you count as predicting behavior – um, what you include when you do a meta-analysis, which is just uh, an analysis of all the studies that you can find that have tried to find a link. And certainly there are, are um, uh, moderators such that for some things, it's a better predictor of behavior than for other things. But nonetheless, even the people who are the staunchest defenders that it predicts behavior as measured by anything um, admit that it is a weak predictor of behavior. Effect sizes, which is sort of a standard statistical way of describing the relationship between two variables, they're low. They're, they're pretty low. So uh, when you want to predict whether or not somebody who 
scores biased on the IAT um, is going to engage in any specific prejudicial behavior, you don't have a great shot, right? You are more likely to be wrong than, than people might think. And that's what gets lost in the discussion about this stuff, right? This is not a goal. This is not a sort of golden road to the, you know, the real causes of behavior. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, usually these studies will, you use a limited number of measures. Um, uh, the test itself it suffers from some methodological problems and you, you wouldn't expect the, the relationship to be too high. In an ideal world, you would have multiple tests of an implicit attitude and you would assess uh, prejudicial behavior over a long period of time and see, you know, in multiple ways and see whether or not you actually get predictive power. But, but it is really difficult to do that. So we often use just one measure to assess implicit attitudes and we often use one or two measures of behavior because we're constrained in the lab. Um, so, and, and it seems like having read about the controversy surrounding this, a lot of the controversy also revolves around what has been said about the results, including by by the authors yeah. and the kinds of policies that it has led to people in implementing. But I, the depressing part of this controversy, and it is a depressing controversy. I got depressed as I was <laughs> <laughs> reading deep into it today. Uh, it seems to be not on the very technical nature of the debates about whether it predicts behavior at the individual level or the group level and to what extent and to what the degree and what the effect sizes were and what the reliability of the test is, what the validity of the test is. Uh, it's more what people have said that it shows contrasted with what it actually shows. With what it actually shows, yeah. yeah. So I'll give a little sort of um, uh, history of, of this because I was a graduate student at Yale when Mazarin Banaji had a very, very active lab and the... IIT, the implicit association test that we just described, was being sort of their their lab was conducting a ton, a ton of studies looking at, at the IIT. They there was just this this huge explosion of research using the IIT because it seemed like such a easy way to get at people's attitudes. And the idea was, the thinking was that this was a way to tap into. On the unconscious mind. And so their original theorizing was that these were slow forming attitudes that were learned over a long period of time that would be very hard to change. And so, uh, so you're raised in the United States, you, you sort of at some, uh, some level beyond your own awareness, you're constantly uh, faced with stereotypical representations of, of black men. And over time, that will show up in the IAT. And there was a lot of excitement about it. A ton of studies were run. It really exploded when Malcolm Gladwell talked about it. <laughs> like most brought, things. Like, like most things in social psychology. <laughs> so it gained a lot of explosion. And, and you're right that the controversy has been really around, you know, here is one layer that is depressing. One interpretation of what this is measuring 
is simple associations. It's called the implicit associations test. So if you pair A and B enough times, you, you will probably score on this test. You, you will demonstrate that A and B are associated with you. So black and bad or white and good. Um, whether or not that is reflecting valence that you have, that you have an attitude about this, um, is up for debate. It could just be simple associations, um, without valence. Right. So that you've seen a lot of movies where the black person has been the bad. Exactly. And so, but, but people, you know, social psychologists included, like to say that this is a measure of implicit bias. So a valence, like you literally, if you score low on, or if you score such that you uh, reflect a strong association between black and bad in comparison to the, to the association between white and good, that you are biased, right? That, that it is racism. It's not your everyday racism, but it is nonetheless racism. But it would ha- even that, right? I mean... It has to tie to behavior in some way, even if it's a small way, even if it's a suspic- extra suspicious look, or even uh, yeah. to people that you see in your store, or people who you you know uh, walk on the street, you know that you see on the street, or people that you interact with at work. Um, for it to be anything more than just a measure of the kind of of the kind of audio visual media you were exposed to as a child, it needs to have some sort of predictive effect on behavior. Yeah. The thing is, well, one, it's hard to, to actually measure that stuff. Right. So, so even though there's been an explosion of research on this, there is surprisingly little good research looking at, at, people's prejudicial actions over time in a way that you would really want to, to if, if you were testing the statistical relationship between these two. And so, so it remains unclear. There's, there is a lot of evidence that there is, there is some effect on behavior. Um, one of the most compelling cases that's mentioned even by Jesse Single in his article is work done by a friend of mine, Matthew Nock, who is a professor at clinical psychology at Harvard and who won the MacArthur Genius Award a couple of years ago. Um, he and Mazreen Banaji, um, who is also my friend and who she's a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> person. She does not come they, off well in Jesse Singles. In, no, in one Jesse, of his yeah, in one of his articles. Yeah. yeah. So I should I should say, you know, the the IT people, Mazreen Banaji, Brian Nosek, these are these are personal close friends of mine, as is Matt Knock. So so this may be one reason to to take my sort of discount my positivity here but uh, but i think so research by matt knock and mazarin banaji show that implicit attitude that, that an implicit associations test measuring uh self-harm uh self-injury so associations between y- yourself and self-injury um are actually very very powerful predictors of whether or not somebody's going to injure themselves or attempt suicide um it's it's a striking finding that at least adds some nuance that there's one question about there are questions about the test itself. You know, one of the problems is it's always a relative measure. It's, it's the score of black versus white. Um, uh, there are test retest reliability issues. There are all kinds of, of, of issues that you, that, that Jesse single raises about the test itself. 
but there is no reason to think that it would be equally good at predicting behavior across all domains. So it could be um, that it predicts, uh, for instance, in this self-injurious and suicidal ideation uh, or suicidal attempts paper, um, it, it clearly predicts that behavior. And there is evidence that the degree to which your implicit and your explicit beliefs converge, that's the best predictor of behavior. So, so if you both score anti-black uh, and you kind of say, yeah, I kind of don't like black people, the implicit test predicts above and beyond just the explicit test, right? So, so can I, uh, are, are you done with that thought? Yeah, yeah. So, so the the variety of behaviors is all I was saying uh, yeah. will affect will affect what, the relationship between the the task and behavior. So, I don't know what what the implications of what I'm about to say are. Um, so, I'm just gonna put it out there. So, it, my result I can't believe I've held off reporting it <laughs> this long showed that. Uh, there's no, uh, I have no automatic preference between African Americans and European Americans. Um, now let's say that's reliable. In fact, I did take this about eight years ago and I, and it wasn't that it it showed that I had, uh, you know, I had implicitly racist attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Me Uh, too. And, and now when I take it, it shows this. Now let's say that the reason for this, the reason for my good score now is, is what I think is plausible. Um, I've lived in Houston for 10 years. I interact with black people all the time. My, the, my child's teachers are black. The people I work with in the university are black. And I have overwhelmingly positive interactions with black people. And that's been going on for the last uh, eight or nine years. And uh, so let's say that can explain why I score better on this now than when I had only lived in Houston for two years. And before that, I had lived in one of the whitest places you could possibly <laughs> live, Morris, Minnesota, where my daughter was the black kid because she had slightly swarthier skin than the <laughs> blonde Swedish Lutherans <laughs> that mostly populate. And everybody area. knew she was a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they didn't hate her more. They hated her more because she was black than because. Yeah. She was. <laughs> uh, and let's further say that this result would generalize to a lot of the people that the more you interact with, it's kind of a contact hypothesis idea. The more you yeah. interact with people, the less some of your earlier implicit attitudes that might have been cemented by watching a lot of TV and movies from a, from the time that we grew up, you know, those things start getting overridden by just the, your day-to-day interaction and your life. So let's say all those things are true. I guess here's my question. Does that, would that mean, and let's say my explicit attitudes are not racist. Um, it didn't seem like it measured. It asked a bunch of questions It asked a bunch but, of questions. Yeah. I, I was giving, sincerely, non, non-racist yeah, yeah, answers. Yeah. But, I had a, but I knew which ones were yeah, the racist. A lot of those are like crazy. Like, would, yeah. you, would you be bothered if, you know, if like black people moved into your neighborhood? Or came, <laughs> home, gave, came over for dinner. Or do yeah. you think schools should be segregated? Old, old-timey, yeah, old-timey exactly. question. So I just I just doubt that there are segregationists who take this. <laughs> Maybe they get drunk and they want to see how high they can score. But uh, so I have two questions. Does this make me less racist than somebody 
who maybe lives has all the sort of right atti- attitudes but lives in a less diverse place and hasn't had the kind of day-to-day interaction that would allow them to score better on a test like this. And and to that question, I might say yes in a very qualified way that I'm, well, that I'm less likely maybe to have a sort of those really, like, the, you know, I might be less likely to not sit near a black person than, uh, you know, like some of those behavioral measures. Right. But then here's the other question, and I think this is what depressed me and bugged me. So let's say that this generalized to a lot of people in diverse cities like Houston. Uh, would that mean that that black people face less discrimination in Houston because the people are less racist in this way? And there, I my 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 suspicion is the answer to that question is definitely not, or at least not necessarily, because so many of the deep problems with discrimination and race are structural and those the difference in the kind of schools that that a lot of poor black people go compared to a lot of white people Um, the difference in criminal justice the difference in housing policies all those kinds of issues so that even if the on average the population is is less racist in this way it wouldn't be a consolation or it wouldn't mean it wouldn't it wouldn't have what i think is is the real issue how much discrimination a black person is likely to face based on where they live or uh, and, and you know the kind of environment they come from and and i think that's the depressing part for me is that in all the controversy about is centered around something that seems like it's the smallest little tip in the iceberg about what the real issue with racism is it just the tip (laughs) just the tip (laughs) uh and and like and and addressing implicit bias in the ways that some of the people are addressing it with uh you know like diversity seminars yeah let's get there is uh (laughs) It's it's like a band aid on like a like a little Mickey Mouse band aid on like a gut shot or something like that. It just right. it it doesn't it's it's not the it's not the issue, and yet so a, a, so much of the discussion ab- uh, revolves around it. Right, right. So I totally agree with you. I don't. Well, let let let, let me actually t- give my answer to to your questions, even though they might have been just rhetorical. Um, the person who who does not have the opportunity to come into to, to have positive contact with black people um, and they score low I, they score high on the implicit attitude test are they more racist I think the the only answer there is if we had good measures of of racist behavior whether they included um, you know job hiring or or crossing the street when a black person is coming their way or getting upset if their daughter's dating a black man all of those things i think uh would be far more important than the score on the implicit association task now i do think that that their score would be higher and that this would be related to behavior if we could measure it if that behavior in the right way um 
but it's an open question still. Uh, I think in this country, if you are solidly middle to upper middle class and you were raised in a completely white neighborhood and you never really interacted with black people, you might be more likely to lock your door. Roll them up, kids. If we're yeah, if we're taking if we're taking that as a measure of racism, then then I I would say that 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 would be more likely to happen. Now, whether that's racism or not is here's the part that depresses me. The the critics of the IAT in particular, or the notion of implicit bias um, in general within academics are good scholars and they're definitely attacking on methodological grounds and they know way more stats than I do and they dig into the data. I do, however, think that there is a fundamental disagreement in whether or not we ought to call people who score, to stick with the race example, who score strongly negative black associations on the IT, whether we are to at all label them as biased or racist. Um, And I think that a lot of the energy on one side that wants to say, hey, look, isn't it crazy how we can assess how racist everybody is? That is driven in part by this desire to show that that you know racism hasn't disappeared and then the critics are driven by this real antipathy towards saying that this is racism so like i i am a member of you know the aclu and i voted for obama and all of my behaviors are ones that aren't racist how dare you call me racist on the basis of this shitty test that you put online yeah um and i i'm sympathetic to both of those claims your last point is surely one that everybody agrees on. I mean, this is these are people who are studying individual psychology and in particular a very, very specific way in which you might acquire a negatively valenced attitude about a class of, of objects, whether those it's a race or not. And I think that anybody who thinks that this is a, pan, a panacea uh, for people uh, for combating the problems that have to do with race in this country is is smoking crack, and that's what really really pisses me off. Um, you know, I don't, I didn't read too much about the Starbucks fiasco, but but my sense is that they were giving implicit bias training as a way. Yeah, to, to address exactly this. right. Yeah, like it's just like you know what? Okay, we fixed the problem. <laughs> like, like we're doing implicit bias training. And this this gets to a little bit of what I didn't discuss, which is there's a recent paper that just came out trying to look at. Um, Brian Nosek is one of the uh, co-authors. I think it's brand new. Um, I'll link to it as well. Trying to show whether uh, implicit bias reductions have any effect on behavior. Yeah, and that's a very depressing one. Like that. That actually shows that even if there is a link between uh, implicit bias and behavior, that's that is fairly small as a predictor for all the reasons that that we've talked about but moving people down on like trying to get their score down on the IIT through a variety of means um, doesn't seem to do much to their behavior and that's not a huge surprise right like, yeah. if yeah. there are these implicit attitudes and if they do influence behavior in these subtle ways it's going to take more than a two-day seminar to change that 
and yeah. it's it's gonna take. I mean, I honestly think that it 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 really. T- I, I my guess is it would be hard to measure this, but I suppose you could if you were so inclined to measure somebody moving from a less diverse environment to a much more diverse environment, um, and then measuring you know how they test. Um, yeah. After uh, after that, but that you know, and again, even then, so so let's say that 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 had an effect. It, but but the thing that I think drives people crazy about these diversity seminars and also the way that people talk about their score on the implicit association test, Jesse Singal has. He says it's almost like a ritual now where you have to confess your score and also confess how <laughs> taken aback you were by your score. <laughs> right. And it has this kind of confessional white guilt kind of, ah, yeah. now I'm cleansed by admitting right. that I'm pri- privileged and I'm racist. And, and I know that's not true. And I know a lot of these people are also, in addition to that, actually working for yeah. causes that will, um, that can have, and supporting causes that can have real effects. But I think that's the unfortunate thing about the debate and the controversy surrounding it is that it, the people engaging in, and I think this is on both, both sides, um, but maybe, I, but, but maybe like the sort of the the kind of white liberal who likes to disclose this information and try to address it, it, it there's something about it that strikes me as, uh, well, as 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 you're letting yourself and others off too easy, yeah. and distracting from the real problem. It's a super safe way to yeah. say that you're addressing bias or racism, and I I so. Is a few things. So I think that if there is a value to this work on implicit bias, um, the value is an academic one. So, so I'm interested in, you know, how attitudes are formed and the structure of the mind. There is interesting, there are interesting questions about how the human mind works that this work can address and working out the kinks in, in the, the, you know, keep doing it. I love it. It's good work. There's, there's some value in that. Um, there is also some value in taking the task and realizing that you might have, uh, these automatic associations. I, you know, I can say the first time I took the task, it was, it was kind of a weird thing to, to, to noticeably see how much harder one was than the other. Yeah. Um, so there is some value if it can get a conversation going, if it can get you to reflect. But the way that it's been used now as the source of of problems in the workplace or in society in general is going to, I agree 100% with you, like that's not to, a two-day workshop talking about implicit bias is going to piss off white people who say they don't have a racist bone in their body. Um, <laughs> and it's, not going to change probably their implicit or explicit attitudes. And it's going to get a bunch of white people who already know that they're, you know, th- th- exactly in the self-congratulatory way that, that you were describing, uh, the purge, the, the sort of confessional, it's going to make them happy about what they've done to be less racist. And I don't think it will have an effect on them either. Right. <laughs> and, and so it, it sucks that, 
no, there's no easy way out of the race problems in this country. Yeah. There's no easy way out. And, and anything that gives people the, the feeling that there's, that it won't take hard work of like actually black people and white people talking to each other. No, and reforming major institutions. Structural stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All, all of that stuff is, it's a hard solution. It's a hard solution. And I think the solution seems even harder now, given that, that it seems as if now thought that racism had subsided quite a bit more than it probably had because the, the nature of public communication is, is just such that I don't even believe that people are ashamed to report their racist beliefs the way that they might have been. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if the controversy, I think the height of this controversy was in, during the Obama years where mm-hmm. people, people say, might I'm be more running. likely to say, hey, look, we voted for uh, a black president twice we're not racist anymore and if this had a kind of pragmatic and again i'm uncomfortable about this jesse single talks about this in one of his one of the articles that i read which is look look even if this isn't that good a measure or it doesn't predict behavior it's good for white people to recognize that uh, the country is still racist and that they might harbor racist attitudes. It's just a good thing for them to do. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of using science or fudging the science to uh, further a, a, a goal that you think is morally correct. But but let's just say it did have that effect. Now, I, I mean... I, I think that that I don't the the illusion that we are a post-racial society has dissipated I think <laughs> yeah. uh yeah. in the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the the sort of the sort of need to uncover the secret racists. <laughs> I mean that's what it's like. The NFL just you know, voted for a policy that doesn't allow black people to protest it's like just, police it's violence. Just, that's just So you know when I was uh um, a grad student, Mazreen uh, Banaji, let me be in her office space. So the office space for the grad students that she had uh, was really nice. Um, I was sort of in between advisors and she said, yeah, you can be there. So I would work every day with all the kids who were doing the IAT research, including Brian Nosek. And I said, you know, if you guys really want to use this task in a way that that could show that it works, um, why don't you make a version that uh, shows like sexy half-naked women and sexy half-naked men and give it to explicitly gay men, explicitly straight men and see if it's good at uncovering people who are gay, but they're not willing to say it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I even did some research. I found the images. I called it the hiatus, the homosexual IAT undercover score. Yeah. And I uh, told Brian Nosek about it. And then I told Mazarin, but, and then he told Mazarin about it. And she brought me into her office and she said, you will never do that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I think probably somebody's done it by now. Implicitly, I was a maverick. I was a uh, I was ahead of my time. I think somebody's... that you could have then joined the intellectual dark web of that <laughs> period. Uh, yeah, we were still using AltaVista back then. There, was, there wasn't much of a web. 
but yeah, I, um, I think that if the public debate about whether or not we have secret racism is very different than the methodological, you know, academic debates and we, we can separate them out. They're linked because you want good science to, you know, if there's even to be a debate, but, um, but I think they're pretty separable. And I think that, um, no matter how strong the IET gets at predicting behavior, if what we really care about is making the world or the U.S. less racist, then we're not going to be able to do just that. And in fact, like this in some ways might be a bad use of our energies uh, yeah. that we want to direct towards. But it's it. It's sexy. Just, it's sexy. You but know? It's sexy, it's like, but it's, sec- it's very surface. <laughs> it's very superficially sexy. It's like the Myers-Briggs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. which we'll talk about, I think, <laughs> yeah. right? And there's been, right, I think rightfully so, a fear that employers would use the IT as a way of either screening hires or finding out something about their own employees, which I think would be very irresponsible given, given the sort of unreliability of the test. Um, and um, so, yeah. Can I ask a, a couple of final questions which i just had in my head so number one is this the same anthony greenwald that wrote the totalitarian ego absolutely yeah Yeah. and and that's such a great paper yeah it is a great paper he was mazarin banaji's advisor mazarin banaji was brian nosik's advisor and the three of them have collaborated quite a bit on on the iat Number two, related to what you were just saying. So one of the things that frustrates a careful science journalist like Jesse Singal, and I and I would I, I can understand this, is exactly related to that point about the you know, the academic debate versus the popular debate. So it seems like Anthony Greenwald and Mazarin Banaji when they have responded to critics coming like Jesse Single, they'd said, look, this is an academic debate and the devil is in the details and it's really not appropriate to debate this at, in the popular press because these are really technical. The, the, the issues that are being raised are very technical in nature. It seems like you can't do that and at the same time also promote it at a popular journalistic level and you know use it to write a best-selling book and uh and you know the press really so it seems like there is a an attempt and and this is one of the ways in which i think at least as he portrays it she and anthony greenwald don't come off well is they want to have it both ways they want it to be promoted and defended in the popular press but anytime there are critics they want that to come to be a really technical thing that nobody finds out about. Well, I don't think that, yeah, I, I don't know Anthony Greenwald uh, very well, at least, but I do know Mazarin well. And I think that if, if I were to guess, I, I think that, that the way that Jesse framed it is a bit unfair to her. So I think that what she, what she is saying is, I believe that this test is, in fact, assessing at some level prejudice. And 
you science journalists are coming to me and saying, Hey, Phil, T- Phil Tetlock and Blart Hanton have, have published this stuff about, uh, you know, criticizing the IT and you know, what do you, what do you think? It would be disingenuous if she actually, I think, believed that those criticisms were damning. But she, it's not as if she hasn't published papers, right? They've done meta-analyses. They've responded to the academic papers that criticize them. I can see why she wouldn't want to say, well, the inclusion criteria for the meta-analysis that, that Tetlock and Blanton used were different because of this and this and this. And the, you know, the way that they scored the IAT was they didn't put the blocks together. They separated them and everything. You know, I can see why she would say that. And I could see how Jesse, both in good faith, both acting in good faith, it would come across as if she is deflecting. Um, now, I think that if you asked Mazarin, maybe at this point she wouldn't be comfortable with some of the claims they made in the book, um, some of the stronger claims they made in the book, I, I, I would think. I know for, for certain Brian Nosek is actually... Um, back down quite a bit he didn't he wasn't a co-author in the book but he is he's looking at the evidence very carefully and doing work showing that in many cases it is not a good task but but i can see how that might be lost in translation and so so maybe the better strategy would have been to say these methodological critiques we've addressed here right find a way to communicate to the popular press that these methodological critiques aren't as important as maybe they say they are. Or maybe just be like philosophers and not have anybody care about your, (laughs) uh, your results and theories and arguments to begin with. I mean, you know, if the barns are all facades, but (laughs) how many barns were in your thought experiment? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What was the N? It's been it's been argued that the more barns in your thought experiment, the more your intuition. This is very technical, and I'm sorry, it's not appropriate for debate in the in the New York Times and the USA Today. <laughs> yeah, leave me alone about the barns already. <laughs> I've written it in. I've written it up in mind. Go read that <laughs> in the Canadian Journal of Philosophy. <laughs> My thoughts are well documented there. Also in an edited volume with <laughs> Routledge. Uh, well, at least in philosophy. No offense to the Canadian Journal of Philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> at least in philosophy, you've decisively demonstrated that... <clears throat> no one that cares. Rule, rule, that rule consequentialism <laughs> collapses into consequentialism. <laughs> Solid. Solid. It's a solid <laughs> result. I think. May I nobody think. ever claim that philosophy does not make progress. <laughs> There's a big debate about that right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Damn it. You must not have been online recently. <laughs> have you been I'm in a meditation retreat yawning. or something? How do you not know about this? Uh, I, I, I believe it collapses, and I believe all people who say that it doesn't collapse are only motiv- motivated by personal antipathy toward <laughs> act turns and Native Americans. <laughs> of course. You didn't even think you would have to say that. 
all right. Well, we did the best we could on the IAT. Maybe the listeners were right that we should have. We should do personality psychology. Although we'll see <laughs> how we manage to <laughs> butcher that. Uh, but but Maybe yeah, next time. go for. We'll put a link to this. We should have said this at the beginning. Go take take some of these tests. Yeah. You know? Some won't be surprising because you have very strong explicit attitudes. So if you do a fl- like a flower versus insect, you won't be surprised. <laughs> you, <won't. laughs> um, you never know. You might learn something cool, like uh, like you like stepsister porn. <laughs> didn't know that. I didn't before. know that I liked. It. <laughs> That's I keep that- putting it in the search engine, but <laughs> I didn't know that I actually liked it. Remember that guy's claim uh, in that book about lying um, that we didn't read, but we read the article about it, where he said that the data show that um, that men like overweight women uh, as measured by their behavior. I yeah. wonder if the IAT would predict would predict this porn watching habits. Yeah, there would be a solid finding. That would be. I mean, like, fuck you, Jesse Single. We have evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Watchdog, <laughs> leave Mazarin alone. <laughs> I love her. Um, we should have Jesse sing all along. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. Um, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.